And there's a difference between being oppressed because you're a working class boy and you carry the weight of those types of non-expectations mm -hmm. and feeling oppressed because you're a middle class lad who is having to compete with women on an equal playing field right. for the first time right. and, you know, is frightened of them and, and is just kind of lashing out. Amongst other things in this conversation, we talk about rape, sexual assault, violence, structural oppressions of various kinds, which is something that I'd like you to be aware of before you start listening. You sort of have to speak your truth, but I think then you have to let go of your truth. And I think some of these very toxic debates come when people grasp too tightly onto things. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Alison. Hello, Alison. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this is an interesting conversation for me because we don't know each other really at all apart from through Twitter mm. where I guess weirdly we know like often I do conversations with people who do true storytelling with me and often I don't know them very well but I know some really pertinent details of their life because they share that on stage and it's yes. sort of similar in this respect I feel like as we were setting up you were referring to me tweeting about mental health issues and so like that's an unusual thing to know about someone who you've never met it's person, true isn't it? yeah so it's interesting so yeah the first question I ask everybody is how do you know me how do I know yeah. you? How do I know you from Twitter? Yeah, I've covered that um, myself. Yeah, exactly. I don't know who <laughs> followed who first. Right. I'm I, not I, sure. I think I followed you first. Did you? I follow should, me I should first. Imagine. Yeah. yeah, okay. But it's been a while, hasn't it, as well? Yeah. Well, you're like one of the people who, who I admire, who I follow, and then they follow me, and I'm like, oh, no, now I have to be, like, now, I'm, now I've got, like, extra pressure. Of how, oh, no. Like, like, <laughs> no which is not to say you should worry about that, but it, you know how, like, I'm sure you have the same thing. If, yeah. if someone you really admire follows you, you're like, right. Now every time I tweet, I could I could lose this this person who I admire's yeah. kind of interest. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? What do I do now? Yeah. Is that a deliberately kind of vague question? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do now? Well, I am a lecturer at Sussex, and I'm a mother of two, and I'm a singer. Ace. Yeah. yeah, I think I saw something about that on Twitter. So that's interesting. I, I'd, I'd forgotten that you were a singer, but that's nice to remember. For, for I, I also sing, and that's, a, I guess, a, a shared area of interest. Oh, do you sing as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. What kind of stuff? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a songwriter, really, but I guess like I've got, I've got punk and folk and uh, all sorts of influences, really. I'm very eclectic. Like, a, a electronica, Good. I'm quite into. Like, I've done some electronica projects. At the moment, awesome. I've got... Um, at the moment, I've got no band, so I'm a singer without a band. Oh, and I, and yeah. I, and I, I've not got very much time to even write uh, new stuff, but I did mm. a couple of gigs last year just to remind myself that I sing. Oh, nice. Um, but I'm a better singer than a guitar player, so I'm much more comfortable saying I'm a singer than I am comfortable yeah. saying, I, you know, I play guitar, but I'm not a guitar player. Fair enough. But, um, but yeah. And you write your own stuff, which I, is much, much cleverer than me. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if I would 
say it's cleverer to write my own stuff it means I can get away with not being quite as good a singer maybe <laughs> as, as somebody who sings some, like <laughs> other people's stuff they have they, you know they're judged fully on their own performance rather than their lyrical content or whatever I guess so so, so yeah we're, I mean, we're recording this conversation in your office at Sussex yes and I mean that's a like it's an interesting experience for me I was saying to you slightly off mic like coming into a university mm. like campus having not been to university for a long time mm. and I I went to Lancaster Uni and this is a campus uni so it's very sort of similar in feel walking in yeah, like yeah, yeah. getting all of these kind of flashbacks and memories of yeah. like my, my, my I guess I still consider it to be my childhood when I was at university which is I guess my choice I would never say to anybody that they're not a, no. an adult but I think that I was still developmentally yeah certainly. I look back and I'm like whoa I, I've changed so much since mm. I was in um, and I've just been staying with university friends, so I've got all of that university oh, all yeah. in my head. So it's an interesting one for me to do today. It's kind of like a rebirth, isn't it, I think, at university sometimes with right. people. Um, I always think of it like that. You know, it's not that they're not adults, right. but they are, a lot of them, going through something that's quite profound, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. When I went to university, it was my opportunity to remake myself. Like I was, mm. I was very bullied in school. And right. Like, was very othered, if you like. Yes. Um, and so it was like when I went to university. Right. I don't have to be that role. I don't have to be the, yeah. the joke, the the person people are mean to. Me too. That's yeah. exactly the same as me. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. But the, the the funny thing was, I I found, and maybe, and this is partly to do with being a man and and, and being privileged in lots of other ways that you know I didn't really realize that I was like not uh, you know I, st- I had a bit of a chip on my sh- an unnecessary chip on my shoulder like I went in mm. like I'm militantly going to be me and I'm, I'm, I'm going right. to be an artist and I'm going to be taken seriously and all of that stuff and I like cringe very much when I think about those those times <laughs> in lots of ways like me and my partner met at university in like the first week and uh right. And like the way we met, I was such a dick. Like I was such a dick. It's such a surprise that she actually eventually ended up going out with me and we've been together for fifteen years. It's like, uh, wow. Like the first, you know, the first experience she had of me was I was sat with my back to the wall with a Guardian newspaper in front of my face. It was creative writing, uh, eight thirty in the morning on a Monday. The first kind of like time we were being taught, and I was like reading the Guardian, like keeping myself off to the side, and she said. Oh, it's quite early to be to be up, isn't it? And I sort of like popped down my my newspaper and went, "I want to start every week with writing." And oh, then that's popped hilarious! It right up, oh right? my god, like, what? that's like the <laughs> biggest dick move I can even imagine. Like I, I cringe. I mean, it's not it's not the the worst thing I've ever done, certainly, but it's, <laughs> it's definitely something that makes me cringe. So yeah, you're you're so right. So you're you're a university lecturer now, mm-hmm. right? You obviously didn't start that way. How did you end up? like pursuing this career I guess totally by accident so when I was little I wanted to be a ballerina and I did ballet after school kind of working up to every day really towards the end of my secondary schooling and then I actually went to a full-time professional dance school for my sixth form I went to Elmhurst Ballet School which is was then in Camberley is now in Birmingham and wanted to be a still wanted to be a ballet dancer realized when I got there quite quickly that I was not good enough to be a ballet dancer and that's when I sort of discovered singing and started pursuing that side of things graduated in musical theatre with various kind of teaching qualifications and then just thought actually I don't want this life I mean I think people who do it are amazing but it's a really tough life you know you do crappy jobs for crappy pay constantly auditioning constantly traveling which is something that I'm not very good at either and 
it's really really tough so I thought actually I'm not going to do this I'm not cut out for this I'm not strong enough to do this um, and ended up going to university and luckily I had got two A levels I only had two A levels I'd been able to do those while dancing kind of nine till seven every day <laughs> and got a place at Manchester to do politics and modern history and then after that after that degree they kind of got back in touch with me and said oh we've got some scholarships for an MA in political theory do you want to come back and do an MA and I said all right then and then at the end of the MA I um through a mutual contact I was put in touch with my supervisor for my PhD and she kind of worked with me to to get a, a scholarship to fund my PhD so I did that all of which was really really lucky and if I had been doing it now I probably wouldn't be in this position because I don't think I would have pursued it if I hadn't been able to get funding for it it just wasn't something I felt that passionate about Mm. I do now but sort of fell into it really you know and I feel like I've grown into my job really really slowly and only really at this point do I feel like no this is what I should be doing this is what I really love doing and this job is right for me before that I didn't really feel that that's really interesting from from my point because I've I've, you know the way in that I've had to who you are like through Twitter is, has been through you know your politics mm. your academic writing it's really interesting that that kind of came kind of later I mean mm. would you say like your politics developed like later or do you oh be- yeah I mean well yeah I, I think I've always been political from kind of teenage years I was political and I've always been argumentative Um, (laughs) and I remember when I was at ballet school I got quite into talking politics because I had a really really amazing teacher for my history A level who I still write to now she was very much into the politics and at that point the history A level was all 20th century history Um, of course it was you know the Nazis and 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 Stalinist Russia but it was it was still 20th century politics which was really interesting to me Um, and I remember her kind of just looking at me and saying you know you just love to argue don't you um i can see you going into politics which of course i didn't but i'm doing it you know in a different way yeah so i guess my politics have been there but my politics have massively changed as well i mean i come from a family of conservatives with any kind of c who are lovely lovely people but they are, you know, they have conservative politics. Mm. Um, and I didn't really have any kind of left-wing input into my life until I went to university, really. And it was through the people that I met at university that I kind of discovered that there were other ways of looking at things and discovered feminist politics as well. Right. But my politics, I mean, my politics won't ever stop changing, I don't think. I mean, I still look at things I sort of said last week and think, God, you know, right. you were so wrong. Right. Um, yeah, and I think I tweeted recently that the book that I wrote that came out in 2014, you know, I look at that now and think, I, actually, I was wrong about a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's kind of like, that's what political writing almost is, is like mm. trying things out, seeing if yeah. you are right, and then revising that, changing your opinion. That's right. And, and you, I, yeah, yeah, and you have to, you sort of have to speak your truth, but I think then you have to let go of your truth. And I think that some of these very toxic debates come when people grasp too tightly onto things. Right. You know, I kind of see that in sort of contemporary radical feminism. It's grasped too tightly onto its objects in a way Mm. Um, you know and that's why there are all these conflicts happening with with different groups of people who are saying actually there are you know there are other ways to look at this and we need to look at this more holistically and think differently about it right I mean and those I mean those those kind of discourses that I've also been following and have really changed where I am you know Mm. politically over the last you know definitely 10 15 Mm. years you know every time I think I've 
here's like here's where I'm going to stick. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I completely change everything again. Like, Definitely. And it's and it's strange to like it's strange. Go like last night, I found it very strange to, of talking to people who I who knew me when I had my initial politics. Okay. And like sort of updating them on where I am now and having some of these kind of conversations about mm. about trans issues, about gender and mm. stuff like that. But but having them not in that toxic way. Yes. Like, that was interesting to me. Like when people don't know about these yes. issues. They, and some and like you know of course they things were said that would have like in a mm. you know not in an open space where yes. anyone could see things yeah. things in that conversation were said that i wouldn't want to be you know my friend to be pu- publicly shamed for sure but but like the fact that it was a, a space where we were listening to each other yeah, like, yeah, yeah. was so different from what i see kind of on, in online discourse yes. so often and no, it kind absolutely. of i hope that i I hope that I changed where he was coming from about yeah. this. I don't know, but at least I sort of started him thinking about some things at the end of the conversation. He was, you know, pondering his yes. own thoughts. And I think that's a healthy, healthy place to be. But it's, mm. but it's hard to have those, like that's two privileged people intellectually talking yes. about other people's lived experience. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's no, so absolutely. different from, from when it's somebody's real experience. Absolutely, so absolutely. And you, you need to be so much more careful at that point. But I think that's the funny thing about the safe space debate as well, because there is this idea that these safe spaces are places where you don't say things. And my experience is these safe spaces are created so you can say mm. things, you know. And But most importantly, so those people with the lived experience are able to call people, other people in, you know, and say, actually, what you've just said about my experience is really problematic and mm. it's making me feel this way. And, and let's have a talk about that. And that's happened so many times in my classroom in really productive, positive ways, which is so different from what, the outside thinks a safe space looks like absolutely you know it really isn't about shutting people down it's about opening people up I mean it doesn't even have to safe spaces is something I really passionately believe in too and I don't think it just has to be in academic spaces like I I do performance stuff and I I want like I talk about a show I do called Stand Up Tragedy as a safe space to talk about unsafe things Mm. like or at least I don't say it is that I say we're trying to have that because I think it's very hard to say like categorically a safe space is a safe space no that's right but uh, but I mean I've done that you know and people have laughed like uh, the only one time some members of the audience laughed at the idea of the okay. safe space and I was like whoa I mean you know I don't know what's funny about the idea of safety mm. I don't well, know it's what's it's very easy um, to you know, laugh at that when you've never had to need it exactly, isn't it you know right. Um, yeah right right and, and exactly and I find it very strange that like even really like I, I tick most of the boxes of privilege but mm. I've not had a safe life yes. um, and and I, I appreciate safety safe I wish space, my childhood yeah. had been safer yeah right? I guess I find myself in the category of someone who who understands why safety is needed and gets yeah, very yeah. frustrated with people not no, not absolutely. getting that. Absolutely. So yeah, so I guess we've sort of like started to touch on some of the the areas of of your research of your study. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you know, basically, I, I'm I've been working in a different way, in a performance way, in in pretty much all of the areas of right. of, of your interest. So it's, that's another reason I really wanted to have this conversation because I feel feel like you you have I've learned so much from reading your stuff on your blog for a start. But um, also, I feel like you know, in this conversation, I can learn even more. That's nice. Um, <laughs> 
so I guess for people who do, like, I'm trying to think where to where to begin because there's so many like things. I mean, like I'm I'm interested in talking to you about lad, lad culture mm-hmm. and about feminism in general and and stuff. But I guess we've already mentioned like radical feminism. Mm. And for people who are listening, who are, who might be like my friend last night, they might not know what 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 we're talking about. Yeah, when we're saying that. So, like, what what would what would you describe as the kind of the landscape of feminisms at the moment? Oh, that's tough, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is really changing. <laughs> Yes, I think for me, what we're seeing in feminism at the moment is, I think all sides of it are kind of changing. So back when I wrote my book was kind of, I I felt like the peak of the kind of third wave type feminism, which was very much focused on identities. And for me at that point, it didn't have enough structural type analysis I'm not sure whether that was right though or whether I just hadn't seen it but from talking to other people and especially young people I do feel like there's been a shift in that form of feminism towards a more intersectional feminism which is very much focused on structural analysis and structural politics and then at the same time we've seen a kind of re-emergence and in my experience this has happened in the past 10 years as well of at the kind of 70s and 80s forms of radical feminism which are not intersectional they're quite sort of focused in on gender as the key oppression as it interacts with other things but gender is the main thing Mm. also very much a focus on kind of women's reproductive labor a focus on objectification of women and the sex industry and pornography and then again as well on on sexual violence and that's where the interaction with the trans politics really reaches its apex in Mm. the idea of the safe space the woman only space And that politics, I think, is being articulated by journalists, quite a few prominent journalists. I do think media feminism has become a lot more radical, um, Mm. you know, in the past 10 years. But also quite a few young people as well. And I think maybe that's allowed some of the older women who were involved in this movement kind of in the 70s and 80s to sort of come forward again and speak more. Right. Um, that's my analysis. Like, it could be wrong, but from where I see it, that's sort of what hap- what's happening. And those those forms of feminism, I think, are in a bit of a dialectic with each other, where in response to each other, they kind of emphasise particular things. So, you know, sex workers have said, for example, that their their politics around empowerment and choice in the sex industry is in large part an answer to. Um, you know the radical feminist construction of sex work as always violence and always oppression mm. um, you know and actually of course it's much more complex than that and there there are lots of structural issues at play here and you know and one of the, thing, the things I really appreciate about the politics that's articulated by groups like Sex Worker Open University is mm. that they do have that analysis and they're not just talking about personal choice and empowerment right. but that's the narrative that kind of comes to the fore because it's in dialogue with this radical feminist construction of victimisation and maybe the, the same is also happening on the other side where the kind of victimisation is is emphasised in response to a perception that sex workers are always talking about empowerment and choice Right, that's um, interesting yeah. So yeah, I kind of like to think about the dialectics of feminism, you know right. um, Shulamith Firestone wrote about the dialectics of sex and I think you can kind of think about the dialectics of feminism where it's a relational politics 
Right. You know. The dialectical like relationship between those things, I mean, those two sort of strands of modern or, or not even modern feminism, because it's interesting when you look back, yeah. these, the same debates really were happening totally. the first time round. They were. Um, yeah, totally. And, you know, those, I mean, you know, SWOU mm. also have changed and altered my, my view on, on sex work and, and, and all of those kind of mm. issues and changed my vocabulary significantly. Yeah. Like, do you think that there's a way to, to find some way of unifying these two different strands? Yes, I, you know there must be, and I do think that I do think that social media has a lot to answer for because it does polarise people, and especially Twitter, that kind of drive for the 140 character soundbite, right. makes things really really hard. And there's lots of kind of performative stuff going on, and there's lots of quite one-dimensional types of discussions. And I have you know had conversations with lots of people in real time where we've kind of said. There's so much that we agree on. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much that we agree on. If only we could all sort of sit down in a room and hash it out. Having said that, I do think that at the extreme end, especially of the kind of radical feminist perspective, there is a lot of prejudice. There is a lot of bigotry. I mean, you know, people of that type of politics have been sat in a room, albeit in a staged media debate, like the one that was recently on Channel 4 News, mm-hmm. which just made me absolutely furious because it was just hatred and prejudice which was being masked as politics yeah and unchallenged almost totally because because the people saying it are are academics that's right and and they're kind of senior sort of like senior and it's very interesting that because I mean it is a sort of like with, with all of these things, it's like once people get to a certain level of mm. acceptance within mm. within the status quo, yeah. they have power to then do the same kind of oppression that, that they experience on the way up. Like, No, absolutely. And I don't... Yeah, I don't like kind of getting into conflictual relationships with people in my own profession. Right. And I do try to avoid it, but that just made me so mad. It made me so mad. You know, because it's just based in nothing. I mean, she was citing a study from the 1970s and getting it wrong. Right. You know, it made me furious. I just thought, what an abuse of your position and your power, and what you know, and what a lot of hatred yeah. in that in that position. And why why is there so much hatred there? You know, I don't understand it. I mean, there's also this issue of like, so what what people describe as carceral feminism, of mm. like connecting yes. with the state and yes. like in, you you know you trying to use the state mm. to sort out feminist issues yes. is an interesting decision to make when the state doesn't support women. No, in any completely. way, I would say, pretty much. Yeah, and it's one of the great kind of painful ironies, isn't it, of, mm. of that type of feminist politics. You know, you can have you can have a critique of the police when it suits you, but then when it suits you, you'll look to them to, to make everything better or, or to the state to make everything better. Right. Um, no, absolutely. And the way those feminisms also collude with or are co-opted by really problematic forms of politics on immigration or crime or, right. you know foreign policy any of those things um is a really damning indictment of what they are yeah no i I mean absolutely i find it kind of interesting because i'm i guess my politics lean towards like prison abolitionist like Mm, uh, mm. attitude and and i and and restorative justice and these kind of ways of solving problems yeah it, it seems so sort of Sort of so strange to me that people who I like you say I, I agree with so much mm. with with the people who then but then their final final yeah. conclusion it's like ah uh, and no you know, that's right and as a man I you know I'm not so I, 
it's even less appropriate for me to go around sort of like shouting at people <laughs> about the, the fact that I don't agree with them when they're feminists and they're like you know you know it's a structural issue I don't think mm. it's my place to critique feminism although you know in my personal politics that is it's necessary yeah. I, don't, I don't think that men approaching feminism like should automatically accept everything that any feminist says to no. them because there are so many different schools you have to make some decisions yes, you have to of actively decide what you what you stand for personally yeah. it's how you then you know it's not i don't really think it's men's place to be to be trying to direct feminism anyway like yeah. it's not our place like what i'm trying to do with my show and what i what I do generally is talk to men about like how men need to change for yes. our own good and for women's good but but for yeah. our own good is the easy way in for convincing men a little bit to start listening yeah, right? yeah, yeah. but but yeah I mean so it's a it's it's an interesting thing to be watching as a kind of I feel so passionate about all of it but mm. I also I'm so aware of 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 not wanting to make things worse yeah right? <laughs> and there's a lot of pain and hurt there I think mm, you know right but the problem is that that pain and hurt then becomes the source of the politics and I'm not I'm not saying your pain and hurt shouldn't be part of your politics but it can't be the only thing that matters mm. in your politics and I'm just thinking about the politics around trans women's inclusion in women only space for example you know which is a lot about emotional triggers and, mm. and how cisgender women might be triggered by the presence of another woman in their space who may or may not have a penis right. as if you know how are you going to be able to tell but anyway right. but that politics around emotional triggers I mean people's triggers are not politically correct no. you know you can be triggered by anything and no, does that absolutely. mean that it should be the source of policy right we have to have some other way of deciding what yeah. is and what isn't reasonable and and well, I th- but I think that's very difficult because feminism as a movement has always been very much grounded in the experiential and in painful experience which it should be mm-hmm. But then you can't use just that to decide what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, that's true. I mean, I always, I always think that because, you know, one of the things that triggers me for, like, certain kind of abusive situations I've experienced is, is Christmas, right? Okay. You can't, you can't Ban get, Christmas! Right, exactly. you, can't, you can't do that, right? So that's always, like, that always makes it very clear to me that you can't, yeah. like, I believe in trigger warnings. I believe totally. in, in trying, to, trying to reduce the triggers totally. that people are going to have. But you can't, you can't And people's tr- triggers are valid and they should yeah. be discussed, right. but they can't be used as a basis from, for excluding somebody else from support right. or excluding somebody else from a space you know it just it can't be that I mean I, I think that as well about I mean a lot of people who are within radical feminism and maybe in like other entrenched political kind of slightly bigoted positions is that a lot of the time they have been like you say through, through actual trauma absolutely that has led them to feel unsafe around whole groups of people absolutely who, you know those groups of people aren't all the, the bad like the bad thing that they have experienced but like and and it goes to like like so i mean this is all in my show but like i guess it's pertinent here like you know when i was 13 years old my mom told me that men were to blame for everything we were evil or wrong oh, no. like, all of this kind of and and her oh, you poor thing. yeah but that her what she said to me in that moment which has had a profound effect on my life yeah was coming from her own terrible experiences with yeah. men and it's like and so like seeing that that how it all slots together how yeah. and, and and i guess what that teaches me potentially as well is that there's a there's also a logic of like some men who are horrible abusive men may have mm. had terrible experiences yes. in their childhood of course 
that have led them to also be bigoted against an entire group of people. Yeah, of course. Have these kind of attitudes, which doesn't luckily, make you right. I didn't. Luckily, yeah, no, luckily absolutely. I didn't take that, and luckily I hated myself instead of mm, women. But, yeah, like luckily in very common. Yeah, but, but you know, in a way, it is lucky because I, yeah. I, I wouldn't like I could have been a different kind of person. And yeah, I, no, I don't that's right. Be that person, so. And those traumas are valid, and you know, and 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 that actually, to be honest, that is the worst thing that happens to me in these debates on social media is when I have had radical feminists disclosing at me about their experiences of rape mm. in conversations about trans women's in- inclusion in women-only space. And it breaks my heart because I'm a survivor of rape as well right. and I want to reach out to them and kind of be with them in that trauma and in that pain. But we can't because this, this politics is is what is is the framework for these types of disclosure um, and that is the worst thing you know as a survivor to be told by another survivor that you are making their trauma worse or that you are the cause of their trauma yeah. you know I had a, a radical feminist send me pictures of women who'd been subjected to domestic violence graphic pictures of kind of bruised and battered women saying this is the result of your politics um which triggered me, yeah, you know, absolutely. for days, absolutely. absolutely. And and that's the worst thing, I think, that's happened to me on social media. You know, the rape threats, the death threats from men, whatever. You know, yes, they're not very nice, but to have somebody who I would normally consider to be a sister in that experience engage in such a, in such a kind of adversarial, in some ways quite nasty manner, mm. um, is just heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking, and I kind of think we're all survivors. Mm. You know, we need to sit down and, and be with each other with right. that, you know. It's really sad. It's really, really sad. But at the same time, I'm not willing to throw trans women under the bus. Well, many trans you know, women are also survivors. Of course they are, exactly. And they are more at risk right. of violence than any of us, you know, except perhaps sex workers who are also thrown under the bus, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I'm not willing to do that and I'm not willing to... And also I'm not willing to play that experience trumps either. Right. I mean, when people have disclosed at me on social media, I have not disclosed back to them because I just thought I'm not going to weaponise my experience like that. You know, I have disclosed it in, in different situations, but it's really important to me that, that it doesn't become a war around, you know, who's been raped and who hasn't been and who gets to speak because they've been raped and, you know, whose rape was worse and therefore they get to speak more and decide more. Um, And like you said, trans women also, you know, most of, if not all of the trans women I know are also survivors and they're survivors who've had to deal with their trauma alone because there's nobody there to support them and they don't feel welcome, even if individual rape crisis centres in this country would be welcoming to trans women which I'm sure that some of them would be Mm. I know that Survivors Network in Brighton for instance has done a lot of work around this I know that a lot of trans women just feel you know in a blanket way rape crisis is not for me right you know which is just heartbreaking right I mean it's yeah I mean I I experienced some of those kind of uh, those feelings around these kind of issues as well because I mean like and it is a strange thing of like when like sometimes disclosing in a political way does seem valid yeah like and sometimes it doesn't and so yeah like I you know one of the things I sort of address it in my 
show at the moment is that I I don't know it's a it's a complicated area but I I, I am a survivor of sexual assault uh, okay. from a woman at university right you could call it like there's diff- like legally you can't call it rape because like legal yeah. like but but it's a complicated Whatever. yeah so, exactly right. yeah and, and so but and I understand as well I'm not claiming and I don't claim in my show that it's equal that everyone's equally at risk of of of, of sexual violence like no. I, it's massively gendered it's much more likely that women are going to experience sexual assault or whatever but it ha- but it happens it doesn't invalidate your experience right. though and, exactly and, and, and I also want to like I don't want to intrude into people's spaces mm. but I also feel sometimes like I'm a survivor these other people are survivors yeah. right? like like there's there's a there's a commonality there of but, course but sometimes like you know I've been in situations on Twitter where women are denying the possibility that men can be raped right and, and that's like it, it puts you into this weird position where I don't want to be what about the men yeah, like, yeah. so don't, yeah. like, don't force me to be that no like, absolutely <laughs> absolutely no that's right that's right yeah um, And but that whole politics around trans women only works if cisgender women are never, ever, ever abusive. Right. You know, that's what it relies on. It relies on locating violence solely in the male body and specifically in the penis. Yeah, well, it's such a weird... Because I think so often, and and it's not quite as clear-cut as this, but so often if you've experienced abuse, it does mean that you are likely to reenact that in other ways on other people. Yeah. And so, like, there's all of that is in my mind when I see, you know, people who've experienced trauma then, like, re-traumatising survivors or whatever, like, like, you've experienced. It's like... You know, my 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 mum was t- a terrible mother, but mm. like she had a terrible mother, and mm. like it's like, mm. <laughs> the, like it, we're yeah. all in this complicated system, and I no, wish right. there was more way we could. I wish there were more safe spaces that we could yeah. come together and, and be safe and talk yes. across these issues, I guess. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, and, and so a lot of your work has been around, like, sexual violence, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and you've, as you've disclosed, it's something you've experienced. Mm. I mean, how, how, how is that, like, how do you navigate that, that, that thing of, of, of personal and political and, and combining them together in research, I guess, and in yeah. acti- activism as well, I guess? Um, I think that... Yeah, how do I navigate it? I think you just are constantly navigating it all the time, I guess. I don't really use my personal experience in my work that much. Right, right. Um, I think that it's perfectly valid to do that, but for me it feels... It just doesn't feel quite right at the moment. I feel like it gives me kind of fire, and also the most amazing thing it gives me is when a student comes to me and does disclose something, it enables me to say to them, I know how you feel and to kind of watch their face change from feeling completely desolate to having that kind of point of connection. Mm. Um, And also realising that somebody that maybe they don't see as as a whole human being even or somebody that they maybe look up to a little bit has also experienced that type of thing and has come through it. Right. You know, and and is functioning okay (laughs) Um, in society and also to be able to say to them it's not your fault and to have that be really believed because they know that you've been through the same thing Mm. you know it's so precious to me it's just one of the most amazing things about what I do Mm. and you know for that I kind of I wouldn't not be a survivor um, because it enables me to really help other people right Um, 
but in terms of navigating that personally I kind of I um yeah I mean I've had a lot of help with it and I feel like I've come to a point with it where it's not I'm lucky I'm not kind of being triggered all the time by the work that I do right yeah because that's my fear that yeah would be the case. I mean, no making, it's making not my show, I've, I have been a bit triggered at times but, yeah but generally not I mean I think no. you can can somehow not be I don't know and it's things that you maybe wouldn't expect or very specific things like for example I yeah I was I was raped in the context of a quite a small community by somebody who was very powerful within that community mm. and one of what well, I think probably the worst thing about it and the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life is that the people in that community just turned a blind eye or actively kind of colluded with it you know it was actually a small community choir um and the I think probably the worst moment of my life was sitting in a room and watching all my friends, some of whom knew what had happened, actually applauding my rapist, you know. It was just horrendous. And that but that experience is also quite specific and I find that the yeah, the thing that triggered that quite recently was that I did a, a conference event on sexual harassment in higher education, which was about sexual harassment of students by staff. And that was quite triggering for me right. because it was quite a similar situation oh, no, because no, no, this person yeah. wasn't only powerful within this community choir, but they were also my singing teacher. Um, right. So it, it was a kind of parallel. And at the same time, the case around Stoyer's rape um, by James Dean was also in the press, right. which also is a kind of similar thing, somebody in a very public role, somebody who's kind of revered within a, within a small community. Luckily, I think, I hope, the porn industry responded to that much better than my small community choir right. did, you yeah. know, and much better than a lot of universities do. Yeah, mm. that's been interesting to see. You mm. know, the, 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 really interesting. Yeah, all institutions kind of should look towards the porn industry. Totally. And how, they handle, how they handle these kind of allegations totally. and situations, yeah. But yeah, that's, I mean, that was quite specific and I don't find that I'm kind of walking around being triggered all the time by the work that I do um, well, that's good I'm which glad. is good otherwise I wouldn't <laughs> yeah, be able right. to do it and, I've, and I think that's really important both for your own mental health but also in terms of being able to do the work effectively because like I said your triggers are important and they're valid and they give you fire and they give you an extra drive but if that's directing what you're doing mm. then there will be things that you will miss mm. you know there will be things that will be distorted in your mind because you're coming at it from that place Um, which is not to deny the role of emotions in in academic research. Most academics are driven by their emotions, even though they pretend they're not. But I think it's about making sure that those emotions can be held properly and held in such a way that they are not causing you to make mistakes, Right, I suppose. And a lot of the work that you're doing is kind of about university culture to some extent, and lad culture is an extension of that, and and kind of looking at like critiquing the very institution yeah. I guess that you're, you're, you're a part of yes I mean not specifically this university but yeah. like yeah the acad- acad- academia right yes uh, but not just the staff but also also the the, you know, the students to yeah. a certain extent when, yeah. if, in, when you're looking at lag culture I mean I mean I went I went to university you know 2000 I guess was mm-hmm. when I went and I don't remember it I remember lad culture being a part of culture mm, then, but mm. I don't remember it being a part of my culture at university. Mm. Like I had my my arty liberal bubble. I'm sure that yes. within that there was people who were abusive or whatever. Like there is in any any bubble. Yeah. But but uh, so I'm not sort of like saying we were we were above yes. uh, any critique. But I didn't. I don't. 
I never, I didn't engage with the the lad culture. I didn't like that was the same kind of culture I always didn't want to be a part of. Yes. I mean, has it has it increased since then? Do you think? Like between then and now? Well, we don't really know, you know, right. because we didn't measure it before, right. and we, you know, and we can't really measure it now either, because in some ways it's quite nebulous. But I, I think what the impression that I got from my research on it was that the women students we talked to really did feel like it was all pervasive, which might not necessarily mean that there are more young men engaging in these types of cultures but it might mean that these cultures have more power you know so the power of sports teams but also the way it's carried into social media so Unilad for example has right. loads and loads of people right. on its Facebook and these memes circulate don't they around social media but also the kind of commercialization of student nightlife which is changing now after all the media discussion of these issues but at the time that we did our research they were very much making use of these types of slogans and images and memes to kind of sell student nights and to get to get students in drinking or or whatever right i mean certainly when i was at university there was definitely a focus on like the the booze was so cheap yeah the idea that like i'm I'm not like a puritan i'm not like saying people shouldn't drink uh, yeah and i'm not saying that drink is an excuse either but no but it was definitely the focus was on let's how can we get these young people out of their heads as quick as possible yes like and get them to spend the most money yes in in a way even though the drinks were cheap i guess they made a lot of profit from that no i'm sure they did and and it seems like they were using kind of quite sexist imagery and and slogans to sell these types of nights you know So I think that it definitely feels like it's all pervasive. And also I think one of the things that's happened on social media is that that sort of really nasty side of the sexism has become much more visible. Mm. You know, so I'm not saying that men are any nastier than they were before. They probably always have been really nasty. But, you know, you can see it. You can see it on the Facebook pages. You can see it on the tweets that are sent by, you know, Unilad or Gamergate people. It's hard to deny it. It's It's hard to deny it. It's right there. And also the relative anonymity of social media as well probably gives people license to be their absolute worst selves, you know, in a way that maybe they didn't have before so yeah so that I guess would be my answer we don't really know whether it's increased or not but it certainly seems to be experienced as being worse and how would you define lad culture like Oh, I don't know. I mean, this definition that we wrote in our NUS report has been kind of circulating, where I think we defined it as a sort of pack mentality, you know, amongst groups of men, which is focused on competition and trying to outdo each other, whether that's in terms of drinking or taking drugs or or having sex or or kind of abusing women, you know, Mm. who can be the most sexist, who can be the most shocking, who can kind of be the most obnoxious. Banter. Um, Banter, exactly. Um, I think Steve Dempster wrote about it as being drinking fucking in football although actually my research has been more about rugby it seems to be more rugby that's sort of emerging as one of the key sites for it and then the other thing that we really found about it is that it is a privileged masculinity so it is the sort of middle class white guys who are engaging in this and the the ones that have probably been to private school it seems to be the more elite universities where these things are coming out and being exposed which doesn't necessarily mean they're not happening elsewhere but mm. you know the rugby teams the debating societies the kind of exclusive drinking clubs that kind of thing it seems right. to be where it's operating and also I'm not saying that that's the only form of sexism either that's at play and I do worry that in the kind of media circus around it the focus has really honed in on lad culture and we 
risk missing you know the other types of things that are going on like the gamergate thing mm-hmm. you know which is not lad culture but right. which is just as awful yeah if not worse yeah i guess yeah, that's yeah. what that's what i'd say about it I mean, in the last five years or ten years, there's been more talk of the problems of, mm. of masculinity within geek cultures. Yes. But um, but certainly, like, that's had a lot less focus yeah. like, over time. Like, like certainly, I don't know if I identify as a geek. I probably mm. would have been called one. Uh, it's one of the many things thrown at me, not the most hurtful ones. Mm. Definitely something where I, I know people within that kind of, who've grown up in that way of feeling slightly outside, which I guess mm. means that they feel like they can't be. Etc. Etc. Yes. They, they think they can't be bad guys. They yeah, can't yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've had to struggle, and I yeah. guess it's kind of like I see in that a kind of a mirror image of where I could be again. Like yes. that I did. I struggled in, in, with bullying, being bullied in school. I could have kind of gone, gone out into the world and gone right. I deserve to yeah, get yeah. everything I want now. Inclu- yeah. You know, and and that would I, I feel like includes like seeing women as things to get as yes. much as anything else, and that's the problem. Isn't yeah. It? And and also, you know, th- there's some there's some work to be done around sad how sad people feel when they're lonely and they're mm. not successful with actually mm. getting with other people. And women experience that yeah, too. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like there weren't geek girls no, in school. No, absolutely. No, that's right. But yeah, I mean, but like it is a it is definitely a, a thing people don't talk about as much. People are much more happy to point at uh, at the like. At, although it's interesting what you're saying that lag culture is not. It's not a working class, particularly uh, kind of behaviour. Well, I think it is, but this isn't. Yeah, in universities. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's it's a good not. Point. And right, I think, right. it, but in schools, it, you know, it has very much Absolutely. been the working class lads. And but that's that's a different kind of masculinity. For me, that masculinity is about alienation. Right. You know, right, it's right. about you don't you don't think I'm going to amount to anything, so I'm just going to throw a chair at you anyway. You right. know. Um, whereas this privileged lad culture is about privilege being lost and there's a difference between being oppressed because you're a working class boy and you carry the weight of those types of non-expectations mm-hmm. and feeling oppressed because you're a middle class lad who is having to compete with women on an equal playing field right. for the first time right. and you know is frightened of them and, and is just kind of lashing out well, that's the um, sad thing that we're seeing now is so much backlash like, yeah. there's so much like the manosphere all of that totally. horrible stuff that I sort of have engaged with a little bit in yeah. terms of like my you know if you make a show like mine you, you yeah, can't yeah, avoid yeah. that no, that's um, right. and yeah I mean at the same time though there is so I guess there's some hoping with all of this because I, I, I also see like like when I was at university there weren't people who I would have identified as feminists yes. particularly like there's, yeah. there's feminist, young feminists out there who yeah, are like, totally inspiring and Definitely. not just feminists as well like like women who are politically active in many many forms and yes. they, they, they may all broadly define or or maybe not define occasionally as feminists but yeah. they're, but they're, they're they're active, like fighting back against this kind of all of this privilege backlash yeah. that's happening too. So no, absolutely. and also there are men out there who are actively looking at masculinity and trying to do it differently and trying to articulate some of these issues and also trying to be supportive of feminist projects which you know I don't think there were as many of those around when I was at university there were kind of left wing men right but probably they hadn't interrogated the sexism that was endemic within their ranks either although there's still 
a few, quite a few kind of pockets of left-wing men who don't interrogate totally. that stuff as much as they totally. should or at all. Yeah, fact. no, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's the worst. Um, and I think, um, in, yeah, in some of this discussion, especially the discussion of sexual harassment of students by staff, it's become quite clear that there are quite a few male professors who are capitalising on their progressive reputation right. in order to sexually harass students and then say, oh, I don't, you know, I just don't hold with your Victorian morality. You know, you're just all prudish and right. I'm just a sexual maverick who who expresses himself and right. does what he wants. Um, so that's really pernicious, you know, really pernicious. Right. And it, but it is it is complicated as well. The, like to so a lot of what I my live my lived experience and my politics is about challenging some of those kind of puritanical values. Yeah. And it, but it but it is interesting that that so many men and I guess some women probably too, like seize on those things totally and like then don't don't live them don't think about like don't interrogate mm. them mm-hmm. like I, you know I, I think like yeah you know poly setups to relationships or whatever mm-hmm. like I'm I'm in an open relationship but I'm, mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for people who like take it even further and challenge yeah. those kind of Absolutely. norms that we've been given but that's not the same as as, the same. As, as using using your power to no to, that is a completely different thing no it's and, not the same as saying I'm sexually progressive that right. means I can put my dick wherever I want right. I mean you know that's completely different well sexually progressive is a weird thing to call yourself it's a little bit exactly. like like I mean I guess I I, call, I I guess I would call myself a feminist. I understand that there are lots of people who don't see that men as being able to be feminists, and I, I have a lot of respect for some of those points of view. But I, like, I don't think that that's a badge of honour. Like, no. It, like, like I, I think like feminism is something you do, uh, not something that you get. That you are. Like, like a, yeah, you don't yeah. get a, a, an award for being no. a feminist. I mean, certainly no women do. So why should men? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and that's and that. Is some of yeah some of the issues I have with that kind of sex positive right, feminist right. perspective is that it doesn't interrogate those kind of relations of power, if you like, um, right. you know, which, which is a problem um, because sex is about power, and a lot of people have painful experiences of sex and a lot of people have difficult relationships with sex right um, this idea that we all have to be into it like like, yeah. like, like asexual people don't exist yeah and like exactly. trauma doesn't exist and all of these exactly. things exactly yeah, I mean yeah. something I think that um, a campaign I think does this really really well is the campaign Fifty Shades is Abuse you know, which right. is, as far as I can tell, really kink positive and really makes that distinction between consensual kink and what's going on in Fifty Shades, which certainly isn't. Right. Um, and, you know, that's an example of, I guess, the right way to do it. Um, right. The kind of opposite to the to the kind of sexually liberated professor who uses that power to, to abuse young yes. undergraduates. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did you become the kind of feminist you are? I guess, like, how did that how did that happen for you? Like, obviously, you're more likely to to intuitively have a sort of feminist stance as mm. someone with the lived experience of being a woman in a patriarchal society. But yeah, yeah, and I don't know whether I feel like I've become, you know, I don't think it's ever finished. Right. But I've I've moved quite a lot. Like I said, I come from quite a conservative background conservative family and I wasn't really exposed to any sort of left wing or any feminist literature until I started university and started studying gender within the context of my politics degree and actually sadly well maybe not sadly the the thing that really did it for me was reading the female eunuch 
by Jermaine yeah, Greer. Such a complicated feeling that people have oh, now. So many people were changed by Jermaine Greer. I book. was. Yeah. I was totally changed by reading that book, you know. And I know it's very flawed. I know the argument's very pl- flawed, but there's something about her prose that's really powerful. Um, and it certainly spoke to me as a kind of 19-year-old young woman reading that for the first time and really identifying with the kind of devitalised feminine person that she was sketching in in that book and you know and obviously there are there are issues around vilifying femininity and that's something that I've learned not to do but there is something about kind of analyzing those relations of oppression which produce particular formulations of gender and and you know that thing of of seeing the feminine as something which had been divested of power by the patriarchal system um, was really, really powerful to me because I guess I'd been just so girly. I mean, I was a ballerina, you know. You can't get more girly than that, you know, and you can't get more... Well, well, I was going to say you can't get more passive than that, but that's not actually true because it's fucking hard work and, you know, and you have to be really super strong. But the kind of... The outward view of that is of you being presented to the audience you know as some kind of thing some beautiful thing so I kind of I guess I really saw that in Greer's writing and that just led me to kind of do you know I I read all of the all of the 70s and 80s radical feminist texts which makes me laugh because now when I when I have arguments with people about this type this type of stuff they assume that I haven't read any of them you know because I don't hold with the views they kind of think oh she hasn't read them or she hasn't understood them properly I have read them multiple times you know and I went through that it was a real awakening and a real epiphany for me reading those types of books and I was well into it I was well into radical feminism you know I was a sex industry abolitionist you know I don't remember I don't remember having any I don't I didn't read Janice Raymond's at that point I don't remember having any sort of views about trans women trans people but certainly in terms of the sex industry I was very much this is an outrage you know and reading and Andrea Dworkin's writing is so powerful you know it's so powerful yeah no absolutely so I really went through that and um and it wasn't until my master's degree I guess that I started engaging with first of all with some of the more postmodern feminist texts but also with with work written by feminists of colour which hadn't been part of my curriculum Mm. for my undergraduate which is a major major problem right because you know these feminists are the ones that politicised rape first Mm. you know I mean these should these feminists should be the foundations of our feminist history they they come first you know Brown Miller and and McKinnon came after but it wasn't until my MA that I started reading some of those books and started to really think in more multi-dimensional terms about feminism and kind of try to combine it with a class politics which obviously some of the 70s radical feminists had been doing but not in such an intersectional way I guess Um, when I was doing my PhD I um I think I was in sort of feminist stasis, really, because my supervisor made me do dead white men for my PhD. So I did uh, Borgia, Bernstein, oh, so boring, and Foucault. Right. Which was, you know, obviously really limited in terms of the sort of material there, but it was it was a good training for me to kind of try to think in those types of ways. And my PhD supervisor was completely amazing. She was one of Basil Bernstein's acolytes. You know, she was one of his students, and so she was kind of taking his message forward. And she really was the first person that really challenged me to think properly. 
you know she kept right. saying to me Alison you're just glossing over it you're just glossing over it you know think about it properly and you know she really really challenged me so although I didn't really develop my feminism during that stage I guess I developed my thinking yeah. and then it was really coming here and teaching you know I, I didn't do sexual violence issues then I, d- I did my PhD on women in science and technology right. um, and and kind of actually looking at some of the limitations of that type of feminism which is very much about you know representation and women at the top and right. you know my feminism means I need a bigger office right. type of thing lean, um, in. lean in type feminism mm-hmm. yeah exactly faucet feminism that kind of thing and then coming here and starting to teach about the issues I really cared about you know um, sexual violence the sex industry reproductive rights all those kinds of things help me to develop my feminism yeah, more no, I mean this department seems very uh, it's like quite unique to me like as I don't I don't know I'm not really that in the academic uh, academic world that much but I mean one of the things that I've been impressed like by, by by you through Twitter and what I've seen is is that you know the the, the, the department has kind of ha- has an official solidarity with sex workers policy right? we do and that's really really unique I think yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there might be other places that do it but it's I mean that is the opposite of the general like climate within as far as I understand it a lot of feminist academia as we sort of mentioned earlier on yeah and I mean and so it's and it's like gender studies department right uh, no, it's not. A, it's a it's, it's a research centre. Right. So I'm actually within the Department of Sociology. Yeah. Um, but it's a gender studies research centre. Right. Um, and actually, we've got less gender people here now than when I started. But when I started, there was a really great group of incredible kind of gender people right. um, that I learnt from and talked to, and also learnt loads from the students. You know, as my students have become radicalised and politicised, and have tried to find new ways of developing feminisms that kind of do more than just lean in or do more than just kind of validate our identities I've learnt from them as well I've really been impressed by the development of those kinds of intersectional feminisms that most of our students are are practising I think so being at Sussex has been an amazing opportunity but also then going on social media and testing out my ideas and my politics in social media has changed them a lot you know so yeah for all of the things we've sort of said about the negatives of social yeah, media oh no, there it's are amazing. some really amazing like there are there's voices we'd never hear totally. if it wasn't for social media and totally know, yeah. yeah no absolutely and I think for me the sex work element of it has been really important the trans element has also been really important for me too but we've got a lot of trans students here so I would have been having some of those conversations already without kind of going on social media we probably also have a lot of students working in the sex industry but they're not as out as our trans students are and being able to listen to sex workers talking about their politics and and particular sex workers as well you know I mean obviously pasta chips is you know has probably radicalised a lot of people in in this area and I think I was talking about my book before the the chapter that I got the most wrong in my book was the chapter on the sex industry because what I did was I conflated the sex positive activism with the labour rights activism in sex industry spheres and I didn't realise that actually within sex workers rights politics there's an active dialogue and a lot of dispute between Mm. sex positive feminisms which I think are massively problematic and the more labour rights type approach which is much more focused on structural issues and not about sexual freedom. Right, I mean if you want to 
a really in-depth structural critique of the sex industry. Sex, 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 wor- workers. Yeah, sex workers have got that. They have, like, yeah. And, and it's and it's and it's powerful and it's related to real lived experience. Totally. But it's also intelligently con- con- constructed and like you yeah. know, really all-encompassing. It doesn't. It is. You know, it, I, I, yeah. It's the the left really need to lift, listen to sex workers more because they they mm. actually could help the left like. To yeah, be yeah. better activists, like totally. in, in so many ways, like I think we should we should take the, the model of sex worker rights and, yeah. and expand that across work. No, absolutely, <laughs> no, absolutely, that's right. And I think that you know the the radical feminist contemporary radical feminist movement as well does sex workers a real disservice in in doing what I did in conflating the labour rights politics with sex positive activism. You know, and I've seen it. I've seen it happen. You know, I've seen sex workers say things like, if you criminalise my clients, that makes it really difficult for me because I have to take unregistered phone numbers. I have to negotiate with people much quicker. I have to agree to do things that I don't necessarily want to do because I need the money. And then the radical feminists come back with, oh, you know, stop with your identity politics and your sexual freedom <laughs> narrative. It's like, how can, how can you yeah. hear that from this? Yeah. But I did, and I think maybe it's just a knee-jerk thing of people are so disgusted by the sex industry that they can't hear what's actually being said all they see is somebody speaking up on you know on behalf of the sex industry in their minds and they just react against that I mean I um, guess some of it is also I mean there, there are there are sex workers who are sex positive of activists. course yeah I mean, no that's right so like you know sex work is a broad church as well and of there course, are yeah. you know and, and, and you know like in any movement like it's frustrating for people in the rights kind of area of that for the for sex workers who are like yeah yeah this is great and empowering yeah, yeah. and so great like who don't think about the like yes. there's nothing wrong with obviously there's nothing wrong with someone being empowered by doing sex work no. it's just when they throw other people under the bus by yeah. kind of like ignoring their experiences exactly you know, which which everyone can do we can all ignore each other's experience of course experience. we can exactly um, but but yeah it is a much more complicated area like i don't know if i was a yeah, I don't think I've, I've... I came from a different perspective to, to the sex work uh, debate in that I've never been abolitionist about it. I've mm. always been sort of, like, pro... What I didn't know was I was pro-decriminalisation. Yes. I didn't have the vocabulary, but yes. I've always been, like, very aware of sex workers being humans and, yeah. like, full people. And, like, for all I may have m- may mention, I, my mum was problematic. She mm. she also was a social worker, and she right. she instilled in this idea that all human beings are people, and, yes. like, there's no reason to, like... That I might have, like, worried about a sex worker's kind of situation in terms of poverty yeah. but I, I, I wouldn't have like said like they are disgust like, a dis- like not not to say that you would have said that either, yeah. but, but that disgust thing is not I don't have it you don't I, have I it I don't have it there. and I understand yeah. it's there oh I've had it no I have had it I don't think I ever felt sex workers are disgusting but I certainly felt the sex industry was disgusting and you know and I think a lot of sex workers who are political kind of grapple with that as well oh, you yeah. know because it's so prevalent in our society isn't it that idea that it is disgusting well some elements um, of it are as well like that's the like thing like anything yeah. exactly like yeah. uh, like any kind of especially service sector jobs right you know there will be elements of it that are right dis- well being a nurse you right. know for instance cleaning like the, looking yeah, after other people's kids yeah, is yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. disgusting isn't it as well right so i have had that yeah, I have had that, but I think that I... Yeah, I don't think I have that anymore, and I think that's through knowing more sex workers, mm. but also seeing the kind of the harms of criminalising 
any kind of aspect of the sex industry and how that just has to come first and seeing really firsthand how the radical feminist politics around it is only based in ideology mm. um, you know it's basically an attempt at social engineering via the police which is just not the way to go and it's so clear to me now that within that politics the safety of sex workers and the well-being of sex workers comes second to the drive to eradicate the industry and I'm not prepared to do that I mean I'm no longer totally convinced that the industry should be eradicated either but even if I was still convinced that the industry should be eradicated I certainly wouldn't want to see that happen at the expense of the people working in it it's too high a price to pay Right, my journey in terms of about sex work has been to, to realise the stigma that, that people experience mm-hmm. like like almost like because I didn't wasn't disgusted by it yes. for me I was like you I were just, like well what's wrong yeah, with that yeah no, no, no one's absolutely. going to have a problem with it nobody's yes. like it's you know it's not gonna like and learning that you know my my words can hurt like yes. without knowing you know I, you know I would have used previous like language yes um in a in a in a sex work positive or sex worker positive way yes but, but it wouldn't have been experienced like that no, for a sex exactly. worker when they were ex- listening to me so it's it's it, all of that is it's is mm. been my my sort of journey so I think like yeah. wherever you start I'm I think listen to some sex workers and you've got a, a journey to go on yeah, yeah, like, yeah regardless I mean that's a big generalization so it won't be true for everyone but, <laughs> but anyway so yeah like I guess the other sort of area of your feminism and your like stuff is motherhood. I guess is, is that yeah, like, and, and sort of issues around that. So I guess yes. like, reproductive rights, yeah, and breastfeeding and things yeah. like that. I mean, were you a mother before you got interested in those areas, or were, were you interested in those areas before? Like, which one came first? Yes, I probably. Well, I was. I was. Um say interested in abortion that sounds a bit odd but you know I was I was interested in abortion before partly because I was teaching on it in my course because I teach a course called the body and society and also because I'd supervised at the medical school a a research project which was about GPs attitudes towards abortion which was the idea of one of the students there but I kind of took it on and it became a three-year project with a different student each year working on it but the childbirth and breastfeeding stuff really happened after I had my first child which was during the process of kind of starting to formulate the book and you know and I actually had to go back to that chapter and rewrite it because it was so angry um I kind of thought actually I need to you know I need to change this and and kind of formulate it in a more balanced way and I yeah it was partly grounded in my own experience of seeing firsthand how the agenda around natural birth and breastfeeding can be very oppressive and and kind of put too many expectations on people for me but also my friend you know other people that I'd I'd seen go through that and then looking looking at some of the literature you know Ellie Lee's work on it is really really good and other people have written about this as well but then also seeing how much it's bound up with the neoliberal health service you know and the idea of individualizing health outcomes and and cutting costs and and making us all kind of health entrepreneurs you know we all have our own health projects now which are supposed to be you know reducing our dependence on the state and and there are links with all kinds of things you know like cancer care for example the way that that's become a an individualized project you know and if you don't beat your cancer through eating kale five times a day and and doing aerobics then then you haven't achieved your goal you know it's it's a similar kind of agenda Um, you're a failure as well as a cancer exactly exactly (laughs) no that's right so um so that was yeah that was really a sort of a personal journey which became more of a political journey and I and that side of my politics and writing has taken a bit of a backseat recently because I I have two young kids I work part-time I can only focus on 
a few things. So really my, my research at the moment is basically focused on lad culture and now institutional cultures with my project at Imperial College. And my writing is focused on that, but also the kind of broader critique of feminism analysis of feminism that I started in my book is is ongoing but the reproduction stuff is kind of taken a back seat and generally on Twitter I shout at people about sex work and trans politics. Although it's interesting though isn't it because all of these issues are very connected. They are. One of the things that makes me frustrated with radical feminist discourse with all of the provisos that my my opinion doesn't matter so much for a man (laughs) is like that abortion is about bodily autonomy right? yeah I believe passionately in bodily autonomy yeah I mean to the point where I, I've had a vasectomy so that I, I so that like, I have no control over what a woman chooses to do sure. with their body so I have to make a decision myself if yes. I want to not have children which I yeah. don't want and to take responsibility do. for that yeah. yeah and I think that bodily autonomy is so important and you know for everyone like men should like men want it too like, yes. no one wants their bodily no, autonomy absolutely. taken away from them completely like, I mean uh, um, maybe some people do in certain consensual like kink yeah. situations but, but generally speaking no one wants their bodily autonomy taken from them so yeah. so like and that kind of that dovetails with sex worker rights with, like, with sex work and with trans like the trans does. decision to transition yeah and all of these things like that is all about bodily autonomy yeah. and it's there's people telling people how to how their bodies should be what they should do with them i know and so like i think all of those things do seem really connected like yes so I mean, even when you're researching one thing yeah no, they are I'm sure connected. it feeds, feeds into all of the rest. And also rhetorically as well, you know, I've talked about how the use of the rape experience is often used in, you know, trans-exclusionary politics as the kind of trump card, you know, well, I've been raped and I would feel triggered by the presence of a trans woman in my space, you know, yeah. um, or I've been raped and, and, you know, and I that's given me my perspective on the sex industry and, you know, and I think all sex work is rape and all that kind of stuff. And also the kind of use, use of reproductive, women's reproductive labour to try to mark out these very binary categories of, of sex and gender right. you know and I, I and I feel quite passionately about that you know I kind of think actually I'm a rape survivor and I'm a mother don't use my experience right. in order to define right. trans women in particular as other and also there's a real kind of misunderstanding and, a, and, a, and an assumption that it's a zero-sum type of politics so the the outcry when you know abortion providers started talking about providing services to you know trans men and non-binary people who might need reproductive health services and and terminations of pregnancy is the idea that that is an erasure of women's oppression you know it's just ridiculous as if we can't have two conversations at once as Mm. if we can't you know of course the history of reproductive politics and reproductive rights has been very much tied into assumptions about women's proper social role Mm. as the role of cisgender women as the mothers of the nation as as you know part of the nuclear family doing all the all the reproductive and emotional labor for everybody else that's been a massive part of you know agendas to deny us our reproductive rights but that doesn't mean that people who don't identify as women don't have uteruses and don't need abortion services and why can't we hold these two things in our minds at once we're not surely we're not that limited Mm. you know and the idea that in saying trans women are women too or in saying trans men and non-binary people might need abortions is a kind of denial of our experiences as cisgender women you know, I have never spoken to a trans woman who's been upset about me talking about my uterus. No, right. You know, I mean, it's just a ridiculous thing to think. Well, it erases some... It, it, the, the whole 
idea of universal motherhood or universal womanhood erases like so cis- many people cisgender women as well totally it There's does lo- like you know of lots of women who can't have children for there loads are. of reasons and some of the re- some of the reasons might be because they've transitioned but other reasons are like like ver- you know or they just don't want they to they don't want to <laughs> like, yeah, yeah my partner doesn't want children either and yeah exactly and like, and, and, the amount of grief that she gets compared to me about mm. that decision mm. is, you know, and those, yeah. you know, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's this kind of search for some kind of essential difference, isn't it, which is ultimately counterproductive and we don't need it. You know, we don't need that in order to formulate a politics. Right. We really don't. Right. You know, we need to find the points of commonality right. amongst us. We don't need to be constantly looking for the differences. Right. And I love what Kimberly Crenshaw, I mean, you know, what Kimberly Crenshaw originally wrote about intersectionality was that intersectional politics are coalitions. You know, intersectionality is about coalition building. It's right. not about saying, I'm different from you and therefore I can't you know I can't share a space with you I can't formulate a politics with you although it's important to acknowledge those differences we then find the points of if not commonality we find the points of meeting with Mm. people that mean that we can work together well weirdly from a very different discourse I find like with true storytelling what I always say when I sort of teach people to do that is that the more specific they are about their experience, the more universal their stories yeah, are. Yeah, 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 it's so yeah. true. It's like, true. You know, if, if we look at our differences, we see how similar we are. We do, yeah, and, and completely. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah, completely. I was having this fantastic conversation with a with a friend recently who's a, a trans woman about just about hormones, you know, and she was sharing right. her story of, of, you know, having hormones for the first time when she started her transition and feeling like really it was what had been missing, you know, from her life. And, and I've got another friend who's a trans guy who's been taking his hormones for a little while now and, and watching him become more and more happy and more and more like himself has just been so amazing and so beautiful and so profound and I was talking to this this friend of mine about it you know and and comparing it to pregnancy really and my experience of pregnancy was sort of the opposite it was a kind of surfeit of hormones that I didn't really want and that Mm. made me feel like crap but after after the births the the hormones actually after you give birth quite a lot of the hormones just go immediately because they're housed in the placenta and and I was saying that throughout both of my pregnancies food tasted horrible it just I couldn't have a cup of tea you know I felt so sick and the taste of everything was just different and after my first child I was brought this cheese sandwich it was just a cheese sandwich and a cup of tea and I remember eating it thinking oh my god you know this is food this is what food must taste like and it was amazing and it was because my hormones had we're right you know or we're right. get, getting back to what what they should have been and and you know we were laughing and and saying you know that that experience of transition it's it's like the cheese sandwich you know suddenly you realize this is what food should taste like this is what life should taste mm. like you know if i have this this thing that i've been missing right and that is a real point of commonality you know based on my experience of going through a pregnancy right and a trans woman's experience of going through her transition, yeah. which is unthinkable for, you know, radical feminists who use the reproduction experience as a way to say they're other, they're different from us. They don't get it. They right. don't understand. You know, it's not true. Right. It's not true. Um, yeah. Yeah. Trying to make sure, skimming back through my mind, if there's anything that I haven't asked, I was going to ask. I mean, I guess... Yeah, I mean, so you're a singer. Yeah. I mean, that's the, like the last sort of, like... 
thing I haven't talked to you about really. I mean, what musicals was one of the things was what you trained. That was what I trained in, yeah. So jazz hands, you know, all that kind sure. of stuff, um, which a, I don't do anymore. Right. Well, I'm not. Um, I'm not, not anti musicals. I'm pretty. I sort of am I'm now. Kind of pro some of them. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. You should check out Hamilton if you haven't. Oh no, Hamilton. I haven't I seen that. Well, okay. Well recommend it. I haven't oh, seen right. it yet, but it's it's uh, it's on Spotify. Oh, album, is it? Okay. And it's, and it's but it's you know written by a person of color. It's performed by people of color, but it's about Alexander Hamilton and the mm. creation of the American uh, experiment. Okay. Um, and it's well, well, well good. But it's got lots of like hip hop and all sorts of other kind of influences mm. infused in it. So what's your what's your influences? What are you into? What are my influences? Oh well, my main influence when I was growing up was Prince. I just you know every every album that he brought up well up to up to when he did kind of Crystal Ball which was this repository of all these things that he hadn't released and then after that it all um, yeah I kind of lost track of it but yeah, um, yeah I sort of learned to be a woman through watching Prince videos wow. which is you know probably really <laughs> really problematic yes that was my main thing and, and then also I kind of got into indie music when I when I went to ballet school and when I went to university so I was into REM and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Stone Ace. Temple Pilots and and the Lemonheads all those types of things and that's sort of what I do now so my band is on hiatus at the moment unfortunately but we do three part harmony covers of punk rock indie Oh, nice. Tunes, right, right, um, right. So I don't know, Muse, Aerosmith, The Clash, you know, Kaiser Chiefs, that kind of thing. Hopefully, we don't take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> so we like to do things that are a little bit tongue in cheek. Yeah, and it's great. It's such a nice antidote to kind of just being in my head all the time at work and it's a nice antidote to being a mother and having all those demands you know right. just having something that's just mine and also having that connection um, I mean I still do a bit of dancing I go to a weekly ballet class but um, having that connection with other people through singing you know it's a, it's quite a spiritual connection that you have with people isn't it and it's you know it's very much embodied as well and there's an intimacy that you get when you're singing with somebody else mm. that is really hard to replicate and especially you know we know each other really well we have kind of very different but also very similar voices so we all have very strong voices but we kind of sit at different points on the register but that means we swap parts about quite a lot so depending on who's on the top and who's in the middle and who's on the bottom the tracks can sound quite different so we, we experiment with the sound quite a lot nice. which is quite fun and we improvise all our harmonies and you know it's it's just really really fun if you're improvising harmonies you're writing songs i, I mean, guess so, so I mean, yeah like, to, to, to go full circle you know you, you're, you're you're if you're improvising and you're recording yeah. and creating that's a creative it's very creative so I, I yeah no it is we that, don't yeah. just yeah we don't just do covers we try and also we try to mix them up a bit as well so we you know we kind of do them in a different style which is maybe why we've kind of hit on the sort of punk and rock and and that indie sort of sound also because none of us is really convincing singing you know the kind of classic three-part r&b type stuff none of us has has that type of voice so we're better suited to channeling steve tyler i suppose (laughs) which is really fun Yeah, yeah. yeah and it's such a nice relationship and you know there's a lot of laughter and and fun that goes along with it that's nice yeah yeah i mean that that, i i guess that the the reason i think it's important to like mention things like singing and stuff like that is with with, you know people's view of what an academic feminist is it's so so weird that it's so good to sort of like have a 
like one, one of the things I like about being able to do this, this show in general is that you get to present people as holistic people like yeah. you know they've got all of these different strands and they're not just this box or this box mm. so mm. I mean it's, it's, it's really good to like yeah, to, to talk about those other parts of us as well as the the thing that you know, yeah. the thing that is the headline. Yeah, it's no, great to definitely. have the other, the other stories. And that is a huge part of my life. Music's a huge part of my life, and singing's you know been a huge part of my life. And it's a way for me to express myself. You know that I don't get anywhere else. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, yeah, it's, I, I I love singing too. So it's nice to hear somebody loving it. Um, so. Yeah, the last question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Which is oh, kind of weird when you sort of go into that from, like, personal thing. And it's yeah. Like, yeah, here's the business side of it. But I guess what I want people to have that opportunity. And you don't have to have anything yeah. to plug as well. People don't sometimes. No, I don't think so. No, I don't, I don't think I have anything particular to plug. Um, I'm writing bits and pieces at the moment, but not in a huge way, because I'm in, I'm in the middle of two quite big research projects. So I'm sort of data collecting at the moment and um, not sort of disseminating outputs or anything cool um, but you yeah. do I guess you occasionally put stuff up on your blog I right? do yeah so, I do yeah um, where can where can people find your blog and you, and you online I guess if you want them to yeah you can find me Alison Phipps on Twitter P-H-I-P-P-S everybody gets it wrong and I guess yeah my blog is linked off of that yeah. yeah, with various different bits and pieces on it. And the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Oh, OK. Goodbye, audience. Um, thank you for listening to me. And thank you. It's been lovely to meet you. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Bye, everybody. <laughs> in case it wasn't completely clear when we touched on it in the conversation, at Pasta Chips is the Twitter handle of an amazing sex worker rights activist. Another excellent sex worker rights activist who I recommend you listening to is Tony Mack. She has a TEDx video out available on YouTube, What Do Sex Workers Want? If you want to be fully informed about the issues around sex work and law and the different models, that's the video to watch. She gets a hell of a lot of information into a very short space of time and delivers it amazingly well. And if you want to hear more from Tony in longer form you can hear her talking to me back in episode 197 of Getting Better Acquainted my solo show What About The Men? Mansplaining Masculinity has recently become available on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast as part of the Stand Up Tragedy Presents season you can find that through Stand Up Tragedy on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or anywhere that you go to find podcasts if you're not a man, that's okay. It is a show which all genders can get something out of. It's about masculinity. It's about patriarchy. It's about my complicated relationship with being a man. And hopefully you can get something from it. www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk You can donate to that show on its website. You can also donate to Getting Better Acquainted at www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Goosefat101. And remember... There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. 
So, like, what, another thing I sort of know about how you practice your politics in mm. your life is that I, I mean, I'm, I might be wrong, but I think I'm right, is that you, you have taken, like, refugees into your home, right? Is that right? That's the other one. <laughs> that's oh, the other relative. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, that's, that's annoying that there's someone with the same name as you like, oh, no, out it's, there in the world. It's like, great. She's so amazing. She does sound amazing. She's amazing. I, I love it. I get credit for her amazingness all the time, and I think she probably just gets my abuse. Um, wow. But, yeah. yeah. She's yeah. lovely. She has taken refugees into her home. Yeah, well, you can't um, really speak on that. No, I can't really. <laughs> we are on a list, actually, to um, um, to house refugees um, as and when needed, but I haven't actually done it. Yeah, no, that's um, fine. Yeah. I mean, this is this is this this shows how rubbish <laughs> I am at research there because yeah, I thought that was unusual. Like, basically, well, how that came to, came to me is, you know, I, I follow you on Twitter, I know so many things from Twitter, but I thought, oh, I'll Google her as oh, well. Oh, okay, yeah. And so then I was like, oh, that's something I'd never heard about on Twitter. Why didn't I hear about yes. that? That's something I'll ask about. Yeah. But yeah, clearly no, that's, that's why. Me. Well, there you go. 